All right, everybody, we are getting ready for the show here right now, but a few things to go over. First and foremost, oh, my God, my God, you folks have just tickled me pink. Uh, the, the, the support that we have begun to get here for this show is something that I want to thank you guys for right off the top. You have no idea how much it matters to a totally independent grassroots funded by the people, political podcast to get the kind of support, not only in terms of uh, the newsletter, but the podcast and the Patreon. I just want to take this moment to thank you guys because we, we are beginning to feel the swell, the swell for the gigantic wave that is 2020. So I want to just put this on your radar. First things first, if you have somebody that you know might enjoy this show, let them know. If you have the time to head on over to iTunes and leave a review, if you have a time to leave a review on Google Play, if you have a time to review this anywhere, please do it. If you have time to share it on your social media, uh, these are the episodes that I think we can start building people's habits that uh, this is some place that they can trust and go to during the election. So that, with that said, if you want to support us financially, head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. At the $3 level, you get two extra bonus podcasts, one on Monday, one on Friday. Never be far away from the hot takes when you are a $3 club member. Also, live show if you are in the Bay Area. San Francisco to be specific, Saturday, June 29th, you can see me, Justin Robert Young, in a show I am now calling Can I Finish? Making fun of the 2020 debates in Miami. We're going to have all the audio, all the video, some great debate moments from uh, days of yore, which is why it's called Can I Finish? I'm super excited for it. Uh, uh, my contender co-creator John Teasdale is coming back up from San Diego to help me out with it, which I'm very excited about. So get your tickets now. Bit.ly slash PX3 June. That is bit.ly slash PX number three June. But enough of talking about how we support the show. What do you say we just do the damn thing? Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Politics, Politics, Politics program. PX3 is what you can call me, though. You know, if you're just being cash, got so much to talk about. We're going to talk about the uh, House Dems becoming flustered over Hope Hicks. Joe Biden? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is that? No. No, it can't be. It can't be the sound of Riverdance. 
traditional Irish step dance? Indeed, could it be Joe Biden stepping on his own dick so hard it'll fall off? talk about that uh we have the miami debate stage positions revealed so we're gonna do a little breakdown on that we're gonna talk about aoc talking about concentration camps c-span being pissed off at the uh, south carolina democratic convention and sarah huckabee sanders as well but we begin with the kickoff of the donald trump 2020 campaign now before we get into what we're going to talk about today i'm going to give you my actual opinion about what mattered in terms of that event and it was very little of what was said on stage remember that the new head of donald trump's campaigns we're not dealing with kellyanne conway we're not dealing with steve bannon anymore they are long gone those were the folks that ran it in 2016 in 2020 the big man in charge is brad parscale Brad Parscale was Trump's digital guy last time. This will be a very analytically driven, very digital heavy campaign. The big story, and I think this is the only real story that matters because it's not like Donald Trump is held off from doing rallies while he's president. So the fact that he did another one isn't shocking, nor is really anything that he said. But here's the only thing that does matter relative to 2020 as far as the campaign goes. Every single person, and the campaign reported it was around 100,000 people who wanted to be in that 20,000-seat arena in Orlando, Florida last night. All of them had to give an email, a zip code, and a working cell phone number. This is a data-gathering organization the likes of which we haven't seen. This will be heavily targeted. The get out of the vote effort will be in terms of digital, in terms of texting, a lot of the ways that people get the vote out now, it will be comprehensive. And if you match the fact that Donald Trump has a very, very, very excited core audience that is large enough, he can get people out to fill arenas. And every single person, if every single event Donald Trump holds has that amount of information harvesting that will be something enviable not to say that this is stuff that's never been done before but donald trump's a unique candidate in the in that he can get people out of their houses in gigantic numbers so that's my little capsule of what actually matters in terms of the campaign the x's and o's of the campaign now let's talk about the media this is a clip last night of CNN airing Donald Trump's campaign address. 2016 was not merely another four-year election. This was a defining moment in American history. Ask them right there. By the way, that is a lot of fake news back there. That's a lot. 
This was our chance to reclaim our government. All right, we've been watching the president kick off his re-election bid. He's been on stage for about six minutes. Within two minutes, he did talk about the economy, but within four minutes, it was attacks on the media. So uh, he was talking about a bright, rosy future, but then quickly reverted to some of the same themes he's been talking about since he began running four years ago today. Uh, if I can, want to bring back our panel to talk about what we've heard. So all right. In all honesty, I trimmed a little bit out of that clip, a little bit out of the middle, but not much. I'm talking about like maybe 10, 15 seconds. And the only thing that Donald Trump said was that this reminded him of the Oscars before the Oscars got political, which didn't really make a whole lot of sense. But if you if you can gather exactly what you just heard, the crowd starts chanting. CNN sucks. As soon as Donald Trump says, uh, ask those people back there, he's pointing to the press row in the back, says there's a lot of fake news back there. And CNN takes their ball and goes home. This is fascinating to me. This is just something that I, and look, I asked you guys a couple weeks ago. We're going to circle back to it today. Would the media be able to, con to control themselves when it comes to Donald Trump? They know if they just leave a live camera on Donald Trump, two things will happen. Number one, they'll be able to satisfy the base element of their journalistic credentials. That this is the president. The president is talking. This is a big event. We should be covering it. And also they can satisfy the fact that a lot of people are watching because a lot of people watch Donald Trump talk, specifically when it's live, because they don't know what he's going to say. There is just a unique element of Donald Trump where you don't know whether or not he's going to say something that delights you, that enrages you, or surprises you. Couple that with the immediate disgust of CNN. And it seemed personal, didn't it? It seemed personal that it's like, all right, we're going to leave it on you. But the second you insult us, the second you stoke a CNN sucks chant, we're out of here. We are not here to be insulted. We are not here to give you what you crave, which is earned media. This is what won Donald Trump the 2016 election, partly, in my opinion. Might be doing a whole other podcast miniseries about it. But there was one person that came to my mind when thinking about the dichotomy of the charismatic character versus the media gatekeepers. Because this was Donald Trump being Donald Trump and CNN saying, no more for you. If you don't want to play our game the way we want to play, this is CNN. If you don't want to play the game the way, the way that it's fair, the way that you should, then we are not going to hold up our side of the bargain. Even if it means costing us ratings. For whatever reason, I was reminded of Marshawn Lynch. Now, I know some of you guys are sports fans. Some of you guys aren't. Some of you guys might be familiar with Marshawn Lynch. Some of you might not. So I'm going to walk people through this on a fairly elementary level so everybody can get it. Marshawn Lynch, then 
in 2014-2015 NFL season was a Seattle Seahawks running back. He also happens to be a legend out here in Oakland where I live. But he had a very contentious relationship with the media. Specifically in that season, he began stonewalling reporters as they came to ask him questions. Now, those reporters were very often asking some of the dumbest questions on the planet. But throughout the regular season and into the playoffs, Marshawn Lynch started doing interviews like this. Yeah. Hey, Marshawn, every, every win is big, but just can you talk about this, this one against Arizona today? Yeah. How about the big, big game against 49ers next week? Yeah. How you feeling? Yeah. Any thoughts on the, the defense today and how they played out there today for you guys? Yeah. <laughs> it's a rough game. Anything else other than yeah today? Yeah. Yes, it is an athlete's job to give quotes to the media. It is part of your contract. You have to do it. But no one said you have to do it well. Much in the same way that Donald Trump as a candidate has to go talk to the media to get his message out. But nobody said he had to play nice with them. By the way, Marshawn Lynch kept doing this throughout the playoffs. Here was another one of his greatest hits. Thanks for action. What's that? I said thanks for action. No, I said thank you for action. Appreciate it. Marshawn, can you describe the 79-yard touchdown run? Thanks for action. How about the uh, stomach issue early in the game? I appreciate your action by my stomach. Thank you. It was at about this point that a lot of sports media reporters, and I will define them as old media sports reporters, i.e., newspaper and television and that's going to be an important distinction in a second so keep that in mind they began to get very cranky with marshawn now sure they'd be able to write their stories no matter what they're columnists after all they're able to cut up the highlights and probably get some other stupid quote from another athlete that played in the game that can fill out whatever narrative they want to create around the random number generator that is NFL football, even at the highest levels of competition like the playoffs. But Marshawn wouldn't play the game. And they were furious about it. I'm going to read some old tweets here. These come from reporters. Uh, Bart Hubbock says, Marshawn Lynch might be a great football player, but he's also a disrespectful, unprofessional dick. That interview is not funny from Lynch. Somebody should have said, are you an idiot? Yeah. Andrew Marshawn writes, it's very rude of him. And Jane McManus said, I will never understand why reporters and broadcasters cheer Lynch for his post-game antics. He's making your job harder. Now stop me when this kind of hate fucking relationship starts to sound a little familiar. By the way, just before we get off the Marshawn Lynch direct comparisons, let me, let me get to his piece de resistance. This was his absolute crowning glory 
as his Seattle Seahawks made it to the Super Bowl. He sits down at Media Day, which is a global event. You have reporters from all over the globe. Every one of the media affiliates that carries NFL football, they all come to the Super Bowl. They all ask the athletes questions. Some of them are very silly, but it becomes this kind of fun event. Certainly, one of the most charismatic characters in the NFL. And and Marshawn was and is, by the way. He is somebody that is very funny, very eclectic. He eats Skittles after every touchdown because that's what his mom gave him when he was learning how to play football. Surely now he would have something to say in front of the assembled press. Oh, it started? Well, then let me start. Hey, I'm just here so I don't get fined. So y'all can sit here and ask me all the questions y'all want to. I'm going to answer with the same answer, so y'all can shoot if y'all please. I'm here so I won't get fined. So while the traditional press ripped him, and they ripped him for that too, and this was during Super Bowl week, is Marshawn Lynch being a distraction to his team by refusing to talk to me, local columnist? The online press loved him. Here is a post from Deadspin. At the time, it's an entirely reasonable frustration. Reporters have to play this game even if they don't realize how dumb it is and they rely on athletes to play their roles in the ecosystem. Sure, no one's life would be better this morning if they knew that Marshawn Lynch understood the importance of giving 110% or that the Seahawks were taking things one game at a time, but these writers' lives would have been easier. Their stories 50 words closer to their word counts. But what happened to Marshawn? Nothing. Really, aside from the media bitching about the fact that the media had a harder time doing their jobs or they felt disrespected, Marshawn's popularity went sky high. Why? Because the average fan doesn't like the media. Fans think that announcers are biased against them. They are triggered by columnists who are deliberately trying to trigger them into anger. The fact that there was an athlete who was being disrespectful to people that they didn't much respect was a net gain. Marshawn Lynch went on to be a bigger celebrity than he ever would have been if he hadn't pulled what he pulled. Skittles sent him on a tour around the world so they could do a web series. He opened up a sports apparel shop in downtown Oakland. And one time, while I was walking around his apparel shop, I saw him riding a children's bicycle and he looked like the happiest person I've ever seen. So what does this have to do with Trump? Trump also disrespects the media as a way to connect with both his base and emerging conservative media outlets. So in this metaphor, the, compar the, the, the comparable to Deadspin would be the Breitbarts and the Daily Wires, the Ben Shapiros of the world. Meanwhile, the media needs Trump. If they want to pull away from that rally... Somebody else will carry it, and they risk the chance that they will lose eyeballs. Ratings equal advertising rates. They are setting money on fire if they are pulling away from Donald Trump on principle. So let's circle back to what I asked two weeks ago. Would the media have more discipline than they did in 2016? This is a sign that they might have an edit, a stronger editorial line when it comes to his rallies, at the very least. The question is, how long 
can they hold out? Politics! I would like to take this time to remind everybody listening that you can get this style of political news in your life five days a week via email. Yeah, I got a newsletter. It's called the Free Political Newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Five days a week, five stories a day, mostly gifts, sometimes hot takes. Uh, this is another great way, absolutely free. That's why it's called the Free Political Newsletter, that you can be a part of the political uh, world without going crazy. It's just funny little gifts, man. It, it's a good time for everybody. Head on over there right now. Free Political Newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. By the way, we are officially now on the race to modernity. Yeah. We, we are at that point. We're now, and by the way, we only started this newsletter like last year. We are, we are gaining steam on this newsletter. And that was another reason why I wanted to thank you guys at the beginning of the episode. But right now, we are at 1880. That's our sub count here. So we're on the race to modernity. We, we want to get to uh, not only our, our present, but also our future in terms of how many people subscribe to this newsletter. So if you like the newsletter, feel free to forward it on to somebody who might also like it. There's a big subscribe button right there for them at the top of the page. Otherwise, you can direct them to freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Let's get into the rest of the top stories for the week. The House Democrats are furious. This was breaking today with Hope Hicks. Hope Hicks went and uh, for the first time, somebody from the Trump administration sat down with the House Democrats. Of course, Hope Hicks was interviewed by Robert Mueller. Uh, she was quoted in the Mueller report. But the House Judiciary Committee wanted to ask her more questions. The White House sought to uh, get in the way of those questions and eventually succeeded because White House counsel Pat Ciplione was uh, uh, sitting next to her the entire time. He had said in a letter earlier saying that Hicks was absolutely immune from discussing her tenure in the Trump administration. So a bunch of House Democrats uh, left and uh, told any reporter that would listen that they were furious. Uh, Jerry Nadler, the Judiciary Cherry, uh, Committee chairman, uh, apparently said that it was not as bad as some people were making out to be, and a transcript of the testimony would be released in a few days that would reveal everything that she said. Here's the Trump playbook on this. You had your shot with Mueller. If you could not get what you wanted out of the Mueller report, I'm not going to allow people around me to go and possibly trip up on their words and restart this controversy. Either go to war with the army you have and go for impeachment right now, which at this point officially would be after he's kicked off his campaign for the White House. Can you imagine the fundraising emails? If he is able to track along an impeachment push as he is officially now running for president. Or that's it. Game over. It's done. Basically, what Donald Trump wants is to speed up the end game of this, whatever it's going to be. Either Pelosi's going to get her way and no impeachment will happen. And, and, and all these hearings do hurt Pelosi. The fact that these hearings are a total farce and disaster hurt Pelosi because Pelosi wants these hearings to basically be the methadone 
to wean us off the push to impeachment leading into the election. She literally just needs about five months of song and dance. She wants five months of, I don't know, maybe Hope Hicks will randomly say, yes, I lied to Mueller the entire time. I was the conduit between Moscow. You never know if we don't ask her. Five months of that, and then when it doesn't happen, when nothing comes out of it, she's like, well, look, we can't do it now because we're right here in the middle of an election. It would be unfair to the candidate that's running for president in our party after all. I'm also looking at uh, right now, this is on Politico as well. Pelosi has ruled out censuring Trump. So that's it. It's a go or no go. In a weird way, Pelosi and Trump are kind of aligned on this. Although Pelosi understands that that they she she understands the fault lines that she's desperately trying to keep her party away from pushing for impeachment. Oh, no, Joe! Joe Biden! He's back at it again! (laughs) I mean, we all knew it was coming. This isn't... I don't know. I don't know how bad this is. This is... uh, 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 All right, here's here's where I... Let me tell you what the Joe Biden thing is. Uh, uh, I'm just going to read you the quote. I was in caucus with James O. Eastland, Biden said, according to a pool report, briefly channeling the late Mississippi Senator's Southern drawl. Biden said of Eastland, he never called me boy. He always called me son. Biden then brought up a deceased Georgia senator, a guy like Herman Talmadge, one of the meanest guys I ever knew. You go down the list of all these guys. Well, guess what? At least there was some civility. We got things done. We didn't agree on much of anything, but we got things done. We got it finished. But today, you look at the other side and you're the enemy, not the opposition, the enemy. We don't talk to each other anymore. So Joe Biden's making a comment about, hey, look, there were people that I found really, really bad, but but we were able to to, uh, continue to move forth the wheels of government. Now, both those guys that he mentioned were horrifyingly racist. They said a lot of really, really ugly racist things. And when he says he never called me boy, what he is at least obliquely referring to is the fact that that Senator Eastland called black men boy. He was a white supremacist and a Democrat. He left his uh, senatorial seat in 1978. So this is not the main controversy, but I just want to point out that this also dates Joe Biden Like, I know he just loves spitting these yarns about his old times in the Senate. But, you know, it is 2019. He's talking about a guy that died in 1986. My brother was born in 1986 and he's got two kids. So, this isn't like, I don't think this is going to get him the same shit that uh, 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 Bob Dole got for calling the Dodgers from Brooklyn. But it certainly is him dating himself. Here's why Joe Biden got a rash of shit. Because he talked about compromising with white supremacists. Cory Booker was, uh, he is the one getting the most attention for trashing Joe Biden. Quote, you don't joke about calling black men boys. 
Men like Senator James O. Eastland use words like that and the racist policies that accompanied them to perpetuate white supremacy and strip black Americans of our very humanity. And frankly, I'm disappointed that he hasn't issued an immediate apology for the pain his words are dredging up for many Americans. He should. Meanwhile, Bill de Blasio, who uh, will be very quick to remind you that he is in an interracial marriage and has two mixed race kids, said on Twitter, it's 2019 and Joe Biden is longing for the good old days of civility typified by James Eastland. Eastland thought that my multiracial family should be illegal and that whites were entitled to, quote, the pursuit of dead N words. He then went on, it's past time for apologies or evolution from Joe Biden. He repeatedly demonstrated that he is out of step with the values of the modern Democratic Party. Now, this is a tricky wicked for Joe Biden. Because on one hand, you know, it's probably best that he's not talking about the times that he was palling around with white supremacists. But on the other hand, this would be three apology weeks in a row for Joe Biden. And at a certain point, how much is he going to let apologizing for things he said define his campaign? Because he says a lot of stuff. He talks extemporaneously a lot. So at a certain point, he either has to say, hey, look, I'm not going to apologize for this. I said James Eastland was a white supremacist and I uh, didn't agree with him on anything. My point was that there were certain core functions of our government that I would like to see people who hate each other compromise on. And if you can't understand that, then you're part of the problem, not part of the solution. Or he can apologize for talking about being friends with a white supremacist. That is an unenviable position for any politician to be in. But it is one in which Joe Biden often finds himself. And considering Joe Biden's place in the polls, well, that's music to all the other 2020 Dems ears. The Miami debates. Oh, my God. Are they next week? Yeah, they are, baby. They are next week. So excited. Finally, we're here. Meat's back on the menu, boys. June 26th. This is widely uh, thought to be the kind of B-team debate. This is one with a little less star power. It's going to be the, uh, but it's going to be on Thursday and not Friday, which should get a higher rating. Thursdays are a better television night than than Fridays are. So uh, not only do we have the names, but here are the positions of how they're going to be on stage. So when you are watching your television, this will be from left to right. Bill de Blasio, Tim Ryan, Julian Castro, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren's the top polling of everybody. So she's the center of the stage. And oh my God, one an empty fucking wing is next to her. De Blasio, Ryan, Castro, Booker. Woo! Oh, my God. That is an ink black night because it is devoid of star power. Right next to Warren going right. Beto. Beto's the second highest polling. Yipes! Beto, Klobuchar, Gabbard, Inslee, Delaney. 
when you look at it like that, when you visualize it, these are opportunities specifically for Beto, Booker, and Klobuchar that you got to take advantage of. You have to. Especially if you're Beto. Beto's going to be presented as a co-headliner. If you can't take advantage of that, man, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Friday night, here it is, left to right, Marianne Williamson, John Hickenlooper, Andrew Yang, Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden. Again, Joe Biden's the number one here. And just look at the difference. On night two, you've got an insurgent Andrew Yang, somebody who has a lot of online buzz. You're going to see a lot of, I mean, if, if Twitter wags the dog, then you're going to see the Yang gang out in force. They're going to make whatever Andrew Yang says seem far more impactful than it might otherwise be because he's going to get more media attention for what he does. And also, he's got a message that nobody else is talking about. He stands next to Buttigieg. He stands next to Biden. That's, that's a pretty powerful left wing. Let's look at the right wing of the stage here. I'm physically, not ideologically. Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, Michael Bennett, Eric Swalwell. Not quite as powerful, although, you know, uh, Gillibrand and Yang are about, uh, you know, they're they comparable polling wise. Gillibrand even might be a little bit more, uh, a little bit stronger. But Sanders, Harris, Gillibrand. Somebody mentioned to me, I think it was in, in an email to the free political newsletter, that Gillibrand might be somebody that just looks to, to headshot Joe Biden with some Me Too stuff. She's the Me Too candidate. You got to wonder, what does she have to lose at this point? If she, The only thing that she would sacrifice is a spot on Biden's ticket. But she could do to Biden what Chris Christie did to Marco Rubio. Although then again, if you're looking at a Marco Rubio comp, then it would be Gillibrand going after somebody like Harris or, or, or Buttigieg. But her natural enemy there would be, would be Biden. You can see Harris go after Biden. Harris is going to be right next to him. Be right next to Sanders. I don't know who's going to, I don't think anyone's going, going after Sanders. I think the idea is leave Sanders alone because either he's going to win or he's not. And if he doesn't, then you don't want to piss off the, the, the Bernie bros, right? But man, you want to know what else? I hadn't thought of that until we just started talking about it. That night two, everybody's saying, oh, night two, night two is going to be a ratings killer. It's on a Friday night. Night one's on a Thursday night. That's a huge advantage. I would not be shocked if night one outrates night two. And if that's the case, again, this is a massive gift to O'Rourke and Booker. Warren, too. Warren has an opportunity to kind of go from, hey, look at me. I turned around my horrifying start into being very competitive to look at me. I'm, I am a top-tier candidate. She already had some positive press here from Politico today talking about how she might be the, the party structure, as it were, is warming up to her. That if Biden's going to river dances dick off that they would rather Warren than Bernie. Warren can play ball. Bernie is n literally not a Democrat. <laughs> Unless he is. D did Bernie change parties? 
Wrong! Oh, well then in that case, it might be time for the... Hey, you know, C-SPAN will be covering the South Carolina Democratic Convention in the same way that they've covered all political campaign events for the last 40 years. Wrong! Wait a minute. So this one is, uh, this is crazy. I'm actually kind of, uh, uh, I'd be surprised if this holds. Maybe it holds, but but I think the campaigns might even be upset with it. The South Carolina Democratic Party has made MSNBC the only network permitted to air live coverage of its 2019 convention. That will be this weekend. So maybe it will happen, but I mean, because it's not a high priority. It'll feature 21 of the party's 2020 presidential hopefuls, but C-SPAN's political boss thinks the party is shooting themselves in the foot with the unprecedented decision. MSNBC has live broadcast rights, which comes with a three-hour embargo on footage for reporters from other outlets. Fox News has filed a complaint. A spokesperson for the network confirmed. CNN has reportedly filed a complaint, too, but did not immediately respond for comment. A state Democratic Party insider told Fox News that MSNBC did not pay for the exclusive rights, but will cover production costs. The insider said that the liberal news network plans to have Joy Reid and Al Sharpton broadcast from inside the convention, and many 2020 candidates will speak to the MSNBC hosts following their onstage remarks. This event will uh, include Joe Biden, who thankfully will not have his granddaughter's graduation this weekend, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Julian Castro, John Delaney, Bill de Blasio, Tulsi Gabbard, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, Elizabeth Warren, Eric Swalwell, and Bernie Sanders. See, uh, Span political editor Steve Scully told Fox News that he is really disappointed that his network won't be able to air the live event. C-SPAN has been covering campaigns for 40 years, and Sully, Scully said this was the first time that one network was given exclusive access. C-SPAN's like, we invented this gangster shit. And this the motherfucking thanks we get. We were here with live, boring, political uh, conversation before all of this became content. We were here doing it for you. We hope this isn't an ongoing pattern, said Scully. This leaves a bad taste in our mouths. <laughs> Oh, geez. That seems like a really bad idea. I mean, granted, the South Carolina convention a year before an election, while important because South Carolina is a very important state, is not exactly, you know, the the actual convention in 2020, right? Like, it's not the biggest thing in the world. But also, it's like, why wouldn't, if you're going to go all the way out to something, if you're a candidate, you're going to take time out of your schedule, you're going to go somewhere and you're going to speak, why wouldn't you want all networks to carry it? At least C-SPAN. 
Republicans and Democrats have no interest in working with each other on border issues. Wrong! Here's a little Kushner. Kushner moves. Kushner tries uh, to strike a bipartisan asylum deal, is the headline. Jared Kushner's working with Democratic Senator Dick Durbin and GOP Senator Lindsey Graham to try and broker a bipartisan deal on asylum laws. That would be the next step in Congress's piecemeal approach to immigration reform after passage of a $4.5 billion border spending bill next week. I said in the newsletter yesterday that usually when the president announces that he's running for re-election, that's pretty much the end of any kind of bipartisan cooperation because nobody from the other party wants to be part of giving the, the sitting president a win on anything. But this would be this would be good. This is what Durbin said. I've identified for uh, uh, Graham and Kushner five or six things that I believe Democrats in the Senate and the House will support. And I begged him, take it. Nothing's going to change overnight. Nothing. What we've suggested, I think, moves us in the right direction. So we'll see. Uh, part of the asylum things would be uh, people who want to come to the United States petitioning for asylum from their home countries as opposed to coming to the border and then you got to worry about where they are when they are asking for asylum but then again that does kind of you know uh, take away the point right because if you're trying to flee a country you're trying to flee a country AOC will get no blowback for saying that the United States are running concentration camps on the southern border. Wrong! This here from the New York Post. Man, what is with these... Man, the insurgent House Democrats. They are, are, are just... Yeah. You know, they can't stay away from World War II. They can't stay away from the, they can't, like, just, they, they just love talking about Jewish stuff. The Yad Vashem Museum in Israel suggested that Representative Ocasio-Cortez needed a history lesson after the freshman Democrats said migrants at the southern U.S. border were being housed in concentration camps. Concentration camps assured a slave labor supply to help the Nazi war effort, even as the brutality of life inside the camps helped assure the ultimate goal of extermination through labor. The Israeli Museum, billed as the World Center for Holocaust Research, tweeted Wednesday at the New York Democrat, learn about concentration camps. The link, uh, sorry, the tweet also linked to the museum's webpage on labor and concentration camps. Ocasio-Cortez compared border facilities to Nazi-era concentration camps during an Instagram Live session from her D.C. apartment on Monday night, and she stood by the comments on Wednesday, tweeting, The U.S. ran concentration camps before when we rounded up Japanese people during World War II. It is such a shameful history that we largely ignore it. These camps occur throughout history. Many refuse to learn from that shame, and here we are today. We have an obligation to end them. I think the proper nomenclature was internment camp, or at least that, that's how I'd always heard of the, uh, the, 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 you know, obviously shameful scar on the American story was, was yeah, they were, they were internment camps in that they weren't forced to do manual labor. They were just, you know, stripped of all their rights and taken to a location where they were kept, I mean, horrifying. 
don't know. Just with the, with the Holocaust. Just stay away from the Holocaust. By the way, we've seen the last of Sarah Huckabee Sanders in politics. Wrong! Mm, looks like she's running for governor. She's going to be a daddy's girl. Sarah Huckabee Sanders may be following in her father's footsteps with a run for governor of Arkansas, according to a report on Wednesday. The outgoing White House press secretary and those in her inner circle have been making calls to GOP donors and operatives in her home state. Last Thursday, John Gilmore, political strategist for Arkansas's current governor, Republican Asia Hutchinson, tweeted two websites that could be used for a campaign that were registered anonymously on the same day in May. Sarah for governor and Sarah for Arkansas. Sarah's father, Mike Huckabee, served as the Arkansas governor from 97 to 2006. Oh, she's running. You know, I don't know who else is running. Everybody who didn't make it into this week's pole dance. We're down. We're the stars at night. Are big and bright. Clap, 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 clap. Deep in the heart of Texas. This is a Super Tuesday Texas primary poll. But who didn't make our five wide cut? I would like to say apologies to Harris, Castro, Delaney, Klobuchar, Yang, Gabbard, Booker, Gillibrand, and Hickenlooper. I don't see how you can hate from outside of the club. You can't even get in. Oh, yeah. This is a UT Texas Tribune poll taken from May 31st to June 9th. It is our poll. Stepping up first to the stage with 8% of the vote. Let's get a big round of applause for Mayor P. Coming up next with 12% of the vote, let's get a big round of applause for Sanders with 14% of the vote. It is Elizabeth Warren. He is the favorite son. He is your co-headliner. Almost won a statewide race last year. What could he do in 2020 with 15% of the vote? It is
but your headliner with 23% of the poll. Big Joe. 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 That is Buddha Judge 8, Sanders 12, Warren 14, O'Rourke 15, and Biden 23. Biden with an 8. Biden. Spread. Let's go ahead and get into but your emails. You can always email the show at theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Hot Dog Scoop writes, I must have been given the prescription of Jacobin Magatu. Am I the only one who sees this? Trump doesn't want to win in 2020 any more than he wanted to win in 2016. We already know he can't lose. Every win is the same and every loss is someone else failing. So what good is a presidency to him? On October 19, 2016, he wanted one thing and I still think he only wants one thing and that is Trump TV. Now, far be it for me to say that Donald Trump does not want to be a media conglomerate kingmaker because i think you're right he will eventually we will eventually see trump tv whether it is in two years or six years but everything changes when you're president as soon as you become president you can't become unpresident even richard nixon his life changed forever for being president and he got kicked out so i do think he wants to be president again I don't think there's anything, I mean, I think this is a frustrating job. I, uh, you know, I, I don't think anybody would say that being a president isn't the frust- is, isn't a very frustrating and taxing job. But I do think, I don't know, I, 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 I'm, I'm not there for the, um, you know, he just wanted to start a media empire thing. Might have started like that. But once you kind of, all right, so let's say you assumed that you were a really, really, really good NBA player. You know, whenever you fucked around on the court, you could, you could do okay. You know, you could, you could still, you could, you could spot up for three. And in your head, you, you know, all your friends thought you were a blowhard that you're like, you know, I could play in the NBA. The way the NBA is breaking, I can run, uh, uh, you know, I run every day. I got good cardio. I could be there. And I, I have a good enough shot that if I just were, were asked to stand over there for corner threes, I could take those shots. I could be an NBA player. Not everybody that you ever knew was like, shut up, you're an idiot. And then all of a sudden you found out you could. Even though you were definitely bullshitting initially, wouldn't you want to keep being an NBA player? You proved you could do it. Like you're really good at it. Compared to the rest of the people that are running, or in this metaphor, playing. Sean says, could the Democrats take back some of the Midwest by running on climate change? Living in St. Louis, I have flood warnings constantly since February. Tornadoes are getting more frequent. We don't have mining west of the Mississippi like in Appalachia. 
Road closure, property damage, and flooded fields have been kitchen table issues. The GOP is united in denying the effects of man-made climate change and wholly opposed to doing anything. Why aren't Democrats running on it? Jay Inslee is crying right now. <laughs> He's like, this is all I've been talking about. Am I a joke to you, Sean? I mean, there is somebody running on it. It's Jay Inslee. Jared says, I have a quick question about an issue that seemed to dominate the 2016 primary uh, on the Democrat side and then simply vanished. With all the talk about Biden's current lead in the polls, I'm forced to wonder about the influence of superdelegates in this election. If another challenger, let's say Bernie Sanders, begins to approach Biden in the polls, would the influence of these delegates come into play? In 2016, I seem to recall a large portion of the population became upset over the fact that these delegates would still lead to a coronation of Hillary, even if Bernie was to overtake her in the earned delegate count. Has this changed? And if not, why are uh, more Sanders warrants supporters not up in arms over this? Thank you. Okay, so... Yes, theoretically, Hillary could, if, if, if the super delegates had stayed on her side, even if Bernie had passed her in earned delegates, she could have still won the nomination. But then again, that was exactly the situation that Hillary Clinton faced in 2008. And since super delegates are not bound to anybody, what you found out was if one candidate has more earned then you're not going to see the superdelegates stay on one side. They want to be on the right side of history. And although they have strong opinions and they might have pledged themselves, they will unpledge themselves if the will of the populace says otherwise. The problem for Bernie was he wasn't able to get over the hump in terms of earned delegates either. I know there's been some reform on superdelegates, but I'm not super up on it. So I apologize that this is not a great answer. Although... I will say that there is nobody who has done the groundwork like Hillary did in 2016 in locking up endorsements and superdelegates before the race even starts. That has not happened with anybody. So Biden is leading, and I'm sure there's plenty of superdelegates that would like to see him be the guy, but he does not have outward support from superdelegates at the scale that Hillary Clinton did at this point, which makes it less of an issue. Because if you think about superdelegates as just, you know, a sloshing pool of delegates that's going to make sure that one person goes over the top when they have the earned delegates, then they're not as threatening as when they are a cabal of uh, an insurance policy for Hillary Clinton. Clay writes, as a Democrat. Pete's supporter and former evangelical, now Lutheran, there is no way that Pete's discussion of his religion is appealing to evangelicals. Though younger evangelicals more and more do support LGBTQ equality, Pete is not hiding his pro-choice beliefs. The whole reason people held their noses and voted for Trump was abortion and Supreme Court justices. That is their driving issue, and Pete knows this too. It could be an appeal to Catholics, but I take it as an honest expression of who he is and what drives him. That's why he has my vote. He is honest. Uh, has long-term perspective and believes he could make a difference in something that is bigger than him at a critical time for our nation. Clay, glad you emailed in. That's a really great perspective. One note that always, I don't know, maybe I'm an idiot for not being able to see this, but whenever I talk about candidates, and this is only going to get worse, by the way, as we get closer to the election, whenever I talk about candidates uh, uh, shaping who they are 
and deliberately focusing their messaging, people always think that that's at the cost of honesty. I don't think it's at the cost of honesty. I think it's, you know, you selling yourself to the nation. You're just trying to put your best foot forward. If you're on a first date, are you going to lead with like, oh, you know, I pissed my pants until I was 16? No. Now, eventually that might come up when you're in a longer term relationship, but you're not going to lead with that. It's going to be where I went to school, what I do for work, what I like to do in my off time, right? <laughs> like, so when it comes to Mayor Pete, I, I do think that he is that deliberately making his faith a, a part of the conversation that he has is a honest. I don't think he's being dishonest about it. But he is appealing to evangelicals in the same way that Donald Trump is appealing to African-Americans and Latinos. He knows he's not going to win them. He just wants to make himself somebody that maybe they would consider staying home for. That if they don't like Donald Trump. So so let's say evangelicals don't like Donald Trump, but they voted for him because, as you said, Supreme Court justice is abortion. Well, now the, the, the Supreme Court is is what the Supreme Court's going to be, right? Maybe you uh, RBG drops out and you see, uh, you know, uh, one more conservative Trump appointee go up there. But at this point, you have the tilt of justices that were put there by Republican presidents. So maybe that's a little bit less of an issue. And they like, and Pete gets the nomination, and they like Pete enough that, uh, I'll stay home. I'm going to let my my disgust for Trump kind of overwhelm me. That's important. Getting one somebody of your core demographic to vote is important. Second most important, getting people that would vote for your opponent to stay home. So that's what I talk about when I say appealing to evangelicals. I don't think that there, there's going to be a gigantic swell of evangelical support for him. But I do think that it is an important part of what he does. Now, just to finish, I, lo- I left a dangling participle there about uh, uh, Trump appealing to uh, black and Latino uh, men. I, I heard a great interview with a Republican uh, strategist, strategist or pollster, I can't remember, on the 538 feed. But he was saying that, look, in terms of black men and Latinos, where the economy means a lot and they are doing better, that A, Donald Trump did not do as bad with those two demographics in 2016 as is thought, especially considered or compared to a blanket or, you know, a blank slate Republican. And he might do even better. In 2020, considering the fact that the economy's good. So, we'll see. Alex writes, I was just listening to your Bet 2.0 talk on last week's Wednesday show, and the theory came to me. What if Beto is only campaigning for president because it keeps him in the news and the national spotlight? As soon as he doesn't qualify for a debate later this year, or at, le- or at the last possible moment, he'll drop out and announce he's running for Senate against John Cornyn. He'll immediately be able to beat the Democratic primary in Texas just with his name on the ballot and pose a real threat to John Cornyn, like you mentioned last week. I am bearish on this. I don't think that that would be a great move for Beto. But at the same time, we literally saw it last term with Marco Rubio. 
Marco Rubio dropped out and immediately ran for uh, uh, Senate in Florida and won. So maybe it would be great image rehab for Beto, but I don't think that this is the plan. That would be a plan B. And finally, Randy from Oklahoma says, following Biden's flip on the Hyde Amendment, I believe that now literally none of the registered Democratic candidates support any restriction on abortion and most seem intent on keeping abortion as a front and center issue. While it's almost certainly true that this won't cost anybody in the primary, in fact, I will add editorially, it probably would cost them in the primary if they were to have any kind of restriction on abortion. When the eventual winner faces Trump, I think this will prove to have been a costly mistake. In 2016, a not insignificant percentage of, of registered Republicans either held their noses and voted for Trump as the only Clinton alternative, voted third party, or abstained altogether. I imagine that a big swath of those folks will grab that Trump lever with both hands and yank it like it's the showcase showdown if the alternative is backing a it's a decision between her and her doctor candidate. For most who call themselves pro-life, they genuinely believe that they are fighting to protect the life of an innocent person. Regardless of your own view, if you stop and really consider the preceding sentence, it seems pretty clear to me that the Democrats are strong-arming pro-lifers into becoming single-issue voters. And now, Biden can't call himself a moderate on abortion. I think if he makes it out of the primary, this is what will cost him in the general. Randy, I appreciate it. And obviously from Oklahoma, you have a very, uh, uh, you know, that, that that is a state with its own rules. I will say this. I don't think that pro-life folks uh, had much of a, they, they didn't need their arm twisted to be single issue voters. Uh, I think that there's a reason why the the fight over abortion is a reliable way to get people to the polls. All right, that about wraps it up for today. You can always email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our music has been provided by Valesco and Trap Killers. You can follow me at Justin R. Young everywhere. A reminder that you can support this show by going to takepoliticsseriously.com. At $3, the $3 level will get you two bonus podcasts, one on Monday, one on Friday. These mini-sodes will make sure that you are never far away from the unique jury political hot take machine. Also, sign up for our newsletter, Free Political Newsletter, at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. And come see me, San Francisco, June 29th. Can I finish making fun of the debates that happened the two nights prior? Get your tickets right now. Bit.ly slash px3june. Again, bit.ly slash px3june. That about wraps it up for us. Until next time, a reminder that some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics. And still more, man, they talk about politics. But this is the only show that talks about all three.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>